So here we are continuing through this season of Lent. Uh, If you're familiar with what Lent is, it's that time leading up to Easter, a time when we focus on our need for Jesus. So a a time that often for people is a time of, of humbling ourselves, a time of reflection upon our own lives and our need for a Savior, but, but also a time in which we spend reflection on Jesus himself and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's that time to remember that story that's revealed in the Gospels that we see and acknowledge over and over again, but is still so fresh and new for our lives. So, We've been doing that this season through the book of Hebrews, and we've been reading through that, and for those of you who have one of those bookmarks that we make, we're following along, and if you're following along with that reading, we're somewhere in the middle of chapter 3 right now, so we're getting there, but every Sunday I'm going to bounce through some of those passages, and we'll take a little bit of a closer look at what's going on in Hebrews as it relates to Jesus in our lives. Last week, we began that in chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is truly God, fully divine, eternal God from before the creation. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 takes the other side of that in who Jesus is, that Jesus is fully human. Here's what it says. Chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 10 in chapter 2. He says this. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it's fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I, the children God has given me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, a reference to all humanity there. For this reason, he had to become like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So who Jesus is? You know, that, that's not a new question. It, it's not a new question at all. People have been asking that question for a couple thousand years now, in many different times, in many different ways, and, and even in recent times, right? Things like the quest for the historical Jesus. And 
remarkable discoveries in archaeology that have taken place over the last century have given new insights into this guy named Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth and what it is that we say and profess about who this Jesus is. It's a question that has been asked over and over, and and really it's a question we still need to ask, right? We still need to ask, so who is Jesus? Now, I, I bring that up because maybe, I don't know, maybe if you've been a part of a church your whole life, You've just kind of bounced over that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, we talk about Jesus every Sunday, and we sing songs about Jesus. Of course, we know who Jesus is, right? But do we? I mean, there's, there's that moment where we confess who Jesus is in ways that, that touch in ways that grab hold of our hearts inside. Those moments that come into our lives like that. Those moments where we are assured and know, yes, I'm a child of God. That Jesus has revealed himself to be a brother, part of our family, one of us. But not a new question. So uh, here this morning, let's just do a little bit of church history lesson, okay? And bear with me through this. This will be a little educational as we go through this. Church history, because the question has been asked for 2,000 years, who is Jesus? And different answers have come along to that, and they have not always been the right answers. There have been arguments about that throughout church history as that comes to us. It's good for us to know some of that. Know some of that because, well, when I was in seminary, I had a church history professor who always famously liked to say, there is no such thing as a new heresy, only new expressions of heresies that have been around forever. So even though these are questions that have been thought about and written about and talked about times and times gone by when we don't study or know the history, somehow we fall into those same traps every now and then, all right? So the year was 451 A.D., right? The, the church had been around for just over 400 years after Jesus. In 451 A.D., the church called together a council, right? They send all these delegates together. It was the Council of Chalcedon that met. And the question before the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was, who is Jesus? Because we've got differing opinions out there about who Jesus is and what that means. Well, they came out of that by really digging into particularly some of these passages that we looked at uh, last week and today, right? The, The first and second chapters of Hebrews, that explains something about who Jesus is. Because remember, last week, Hebrews began with that declaration of Jesus being fully divine, not just one of the heavenly beings, not like an angel, above that even, fully God from all eternity. And today we read those verses that talk about Jesus being fully human, right? One being, two natures, fully God and fully human. This is what the Council of Chalcedon argued about for who knows how long to come to some agreement on. 
and what that means. And maybe this spins head just a little bit. How can that be? Fully God, fully human, 100% God, 100% human. That adds up to 200%. You, you shouldn't have that. The math doesn't make sense. But that's what we say about God. One being, two natures. Not two beings, right? Not like Jesus has two minds where inside his head there's two voices going on, human Jesus' voice and God Jesus' voice. No, not like that. One being, one person, but two natures, fully divine, fully God. There's a bit of a mystery to this, right? There's something in this that we just have to find a line and stop and say, I don't get how that works. I can't fully understand how that takes place. But that's how Jesus reveals himself in Scripture. But in some of those attempts to look at that in different ways, there there have been a few times when it's gone off the rails in one way or another. One of the early ones was a heresy called docetism comes from the Hebrew word docetic, which means to seem or to be like, something like that. And this was coming from a teaching that taught, well, Jesus, Jesus was a spiritual being. Yes, they would affirm Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully divine. But that human part, that, that was just an appearance. That, that he wasn't really human that way. So the focus there was all on the divine part of Jesus, the spiritual part of Jesus. And, and that comes from the, the culture at the time, right? Then in early Greek culture around then, they emphasized the spiritual realm as being the place where all that's truly good and pure existed. And then they would sort of say about the material world is that where, that's where corruption and brokenness occurs. So, so in the early Greek philosophies, the way to find goodness and purity was through spiritual meditation and to try to deny or distance yourself from the material or the physical world. So they brought that teaching over to Jesus as well and said, and that's why they thought or said, Jesus can't possibly be really human because you can't have true goodness and purity in something physical or material. That was that side of the heresy in the early time, where they said, well, that human side of Jesus, it just looked that way, seemed that way, appeared that way, but it wasn't. Then there was another side, right? Another side that came by a guy named Apollinaris, and and he emphasized it the other way. You know, and and we see in Scripture in the Old Testament that God would come to various people at different times, right? God came and he chose Abraham. God came and he chose uh, all of the prophets who came along. God chose Moses, came to human beings, and appointed them for certain tasks at certain times. And Apollinaris taught that's essentially what God was doing through Jesus, that Jesus was just another person, just another human being like the rest. And at some point, the point of Jesus' baptism, he would say, that God came and said, I'm going to give special divine powers to this Jesus guy now. I'm going to appoint him for this special task now. And Apollinaris then would, would deny all the accounts in the Gospels about the special virgin birth and you know everything that we celebrate at Christmas as part of how Jesus came into the world. He would say, no, 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 it's just a regular guy like the rest of us. 
and continued to be a regular guy like the rest of us until God sort of said, I've got a special task for you, and here's a little something extra from, of divine power to make that happen, right? So you have those two sides, and, and look at what they're trying to do, okay? They're, they're trying to make sense of, I think, what we know and see revealed about God in Scripture that, yes, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus has the power of God, that Jesus can do things that nobody else could do. And there's testimony of witnesses in Scripture who give that, who show us that, who write about that. But at the same time, Jesus is one of us, a human being. Going through all the things that human beings do, Feeling all the things that human beings feel, right? Having our same desires and temptations. Having everything before him that comes before us in a human world and trying to put those two things together. That Jesus is both of these things, both of these things together at once. So why does that make a difference? I I think that's really the question we're after here today, right? So what? All right, so so why the big deal about getting it right about who Jesus is? You know, if you read Mark's gospel, I, I like Mark's gospel. Well, first of all, because it's the shortest one, so you can blitz through it pretty quickly, right? But he writes it in such unique structure, Mark does. In a structure where if you, uh, if you were to take Mark's gospel and go at each end and sort of get yourself to the middle, the exact center point in Mark's gospel, it comes in chapter 8, the exact center point in Mark's gospel where the whole story flips about Jesus comes in one conversation in Mark 8. It's when Jesus, having this conversation with his disciples, he asks them, who do people say that I am? The question. The question, all of Mark's gospel funnels down to that. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples give responses. Well, I mean, some say Elijah or one of the prophets or a teacher. And Jesus, no, 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 you. Who do you say that I am? It's Simon Peter who steps up in that moment, right? Simon Peter who says, you are the Christ, Son of God. That's where the entire gospel of Mark flips in that moment of revelation. Not just in naming who Jesus really is, but in presenting the question, confronting us with the question, you, you, who do you say Jesus is? Yeah, we still live in a world where, you know what, I bet we could answer the same way those disciples answered. Well, I mean, people have all kinds of different things about who Jesus is, right? I mean, he was this great guy, this teacher, this prophet, and this wise sage. And all the different answers you can find out there about who people say Jesus is. But I think that's written as a question then where Jesus, even as he hones that into just his disciples, you know, that's one that's pointed at us too. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know all those other things that everyone else says. You, 
Who do you say I am? A question that still comes before us. A question that places us in that wrestling of, so who is Jesus for me, for us? So, in Hebrews, Jesus is revealed as fully divine, but then also we see today, fully human, like us in every way. Someone who knows what it's like to be one of us, to live the kind of life that we live, to face the trials that we do. Here's what the Apostle John says about that in in the beginning of John's Gospel and about who Jesus is and how Jesus comes to us. It begins in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then skipping ahead to verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, with us. So who is Jesus? One of us. You know, apart from Jesus, apart from religion, apart from any discussion about God, I mean, there, there's, there's different answers to questions about who we are and how we got here and, and what life means. And it was Charles Darwin who talked about things like survival of the fittest, that in the evolution of species, that those who rise up to be the most powerful and the strongest are the ones who keep going. And, and the ones who don't have that strength, don't have that power, are naturally selected for extinction or subjugation. That, that's kind of what Darwin would observe in nature. You know, by, by that reckoning, all right, so people who are the strongest are the ones who, who rise up above. And those who are the weakest, well, you just don't rise to that level and are not selected to continue or go on. You see, I I think this is what it's after then, that somehow in our way of living and thinking that, that we attach value to that strength, that ability to rise up and be above, that we attach something of our value to that, to what we do, to what we accomplish, to what we can maintain and hold on to, to what we can create and what we can do on our own. Sometimes that drives us in ways that take our attention on Jesus in wrong directions. Because Jesus came in humility. Jesus came and revealed himself as one who had his strength in his weakness, right? That his power to rule was evident in the way he served and gave for others. Something backwards in the model of what we think of when we think of the power of God. That Jesus became one of us to show us how his love for us comes 
among us. And it shows us something about the value and the worth that we have. That we are loved and valued by God simply because of who we are. Human beings created by him, loved by him, called by him. That God loves you the way that you are. You have value because of who you are. You matter to God simply by being who you are. That Jesus came for you because of who you are, as you are. That's an important part of that answer when we think about who Jesus is. That he became one of us so that we might know and be assured that we are loved by God as we are, as one of us. Early on in the Bible, right uh, in, in Genesis 11, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, the people think that they need to find a way to elevate themselves. So they say, let's build this tower to the sky so that we can exalt ourselves and we can find our own way to exalt ourselves up to God or above God. And God, of course, put all of that aside, the Tower of Babel. That We are people who try to find our own ways to elevate ourselves up to the level of God. But when we answer the question, who Jesus is, one of us, he comes to us, that we don't need to be the ones who find the strength and the power to climb on top and be above everybody else, that we don't need to prove anything to God that way, but he sets all of his glory aside to come and live among us as one of us, to be his own. I've I've mentioned this before that, you know, one uh, the, the committee in this church that deals with all of our staff and everything we do is, is the personnel committee. And I like that. I like that term, personnel. Right? That, that's a, something that maybe if you go back 50, 70 years, businesses would have personnel departments. Right? The, all of your staffing and employees would go through personnel. Somewhere along the way, that fell aside. They don't call it personnel anymore, do they? Right? In big industry. Now what do they call it? Right? Human resources, HR. At what point did humans stop being people and start being resources? You are not a resource to be used. You're a person. That's why I like our church saying, no, let's call it personnel. Because it acknowledges we're people. So a resource is valuable only for what it produces or does for you, right? Resources are something to be consumed and used up. But people have value just because of who they are. Just because you're a person. Jesus reminds us of that, right? That human beings matter. That we're special to God just because of who we are created by him. That we matter to God not because of what we produce, not because of what we accomplish, not because of what we have or have built, but just by who we are. So especially for those who 
who maybe struggle. Struggle with being able to come before God with anything that shows what I can do on my own, right? Those who maybe struggle with dementia or aging, those who struggle with weakness or chronic illness, those who struggle with other ailments in ways where it just feels like we cannot get ahead in life. Jesus comes and says, but, but you still matter. You still have value. You're still the one that I came to love and die for just like you are. So that question that we answer today, that question that Jesus loves us, and because of Jesus, we matter just because of who we are. It's a question that we can answer today of who Jesus is. You know, in that discussion of resources and what we produce and what we do, maybe our temptation in answering the question of who is Jesus is, is that we start to answer that question by describing all the things that Jesus does, right? That who is Jesus? Well, I mean, Jesus does this, and he taught these things, and he lived like this, and he went to the cross, and he rose again. And, and we start naming all the things that Jesus does. But the question of who is Jesus? Well, I think our passage today nails that one for us. Jesus is our brother. He came to be one of us so that we can be a part of his family. Jesus loves us as one of his own family. And because that's who Jesus is, that's who we get to be too, part of God's family. Let's pray together. God, thank you that... uh, that you've revealed yourself in ways that show us how connected we are to you. Lord, we're thankful for the ways that you have revealed yourself to be fully God, but also fully human. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that in that question that maybe bounces past and we don't look or think about that very often, but confronts us again, Who is Jesus? May we be able to answer with assurance in our hearts that it's our brother. It's one of us because you loved us so much that you were willing to do whatever you had to so that we could be with you. Thank you for that. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.